So, Lou, do you represent yourself or a group? <laughs> do I have to do the whole thing over again? I really do, huh? No, that's okay. You missed it. It was great. The people up here will share it with you sometime. Um, how many of you have ever confronted someone with the truth only to have them just flat out deny it? You wrestle with that? Uh, you, are, are children great at this or what? I thought about this, this, uh, this week, every week, and every day of our parenthood. It's like you see them do something and you say, you know, why did you do that? I say, what? <laughs> why did you do what I just saw you do? I didn't do that. And I think it's a conspiracy. They're trying to drive us absolutely crazy. I think they all get together. I saw the three of our kids in a huddle the other day, and I think that's what they're conspiring to do. Look, whatever they ask us, just deny it. We, they didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything, okay? If we keep doing it long enough, I think they'll start to believe us and think they're losing their mind. But if you've ever confronted someone on the truth and had them deny it, they've said something, they've done something, and you say, look, you know, I, I just heard you say it. Why did you say that? I didn't say that. If you've ever confronted someone with the truth, then you'll be able to relate to how sometimes you can confront people with the truth and they just flat out will deny it. You will know it's true, they'll deny it, and I think a lot of it has to do with our study and rewards is like that. So you can confront someone with the truth and they'll just flat out, either they don't understand it, but really what's happening is that they just don't accept it. Our kids are terrible at that. But I, you know what I notice? Adults are much better. The story goes that there's two men, and they go to a John Wayne movie. These two men go to this John Wayne movie, and they're watching the movie, and the one man turns to the other one and says, listen, I'll bet you $10 before John Wayne gets to the next hill that he's going to be shot and killed. And the guy that's with him can't believe it. There's no way John Wayne's going to die. Okay, you're on. He bets him 10 bucks. Sure enough, John Wayne races across the prairie, starts heading up the hill, a gunshot rings out, John Wayne falls off his horse, he drops on the ground, he flops around, and he dies. I think one guy can't believe they killed John Wayne. So as they're walking out the theater, the one guy who in instituted the, the bet began to feel a little guilty about it, and he said, look, uh, you know what, I feel bad about this, I can't take your money. He goes, no, you won fair and square, I can't believe you knew they killed John Wayne. And John Wayne never dies. He goes, well, I saw this movie last week, and I knew he was going to die. And the guy goes, well, that's right, you still won the bet. He goes, what? He goes, well, I saw the movie too. I just couldn't believe they could kill him twice. <laughs> Confronted by the truth, and yet we just flat out will deny it. We just can't believe it. It's just not happening. And I'm wrestling with people that are coming up to me in this study, and they're saying, I, I think I understand it, but I just can't believe it. This can't be true. I, I think I understand it, but it just can't be true. And it's just like dealing with our children. Just flat out don't believe it. You're confronted with the truth. And as we look at what God has to say about rewards and works and performance and how it makes a difference and what we have to look forward to at evaluation day, we sit there and say, well, you know what? I don't care if it's the truth. I just flat out don't believe it. And the problem that we have is that's the problem always with the Word of God. God says it, we have a choice. You either believe it and accept it as truth, or you deny it and say that it's not. So every time we get together, we're confronted with the same issue over and over again. Is what God is saying true? If it is, how does it affect the way we live our life? If it's not, then it's no different than anything else. We have a choice whether to believe it or not. 
The problem is that truth always has consequences or benefits whether you believe it's true or not. And you can think of a million simple illustrations from gravity to whatever. If you stand on a tree and you jump out, the truth of the matter is you're going to fall and you're going to get hurt, but you can accept it or deny it, and all it is is in the action whether you're going to do it or not. So that's what we're here to talk about, what God says. I love the parable of the minas because the crowd said to Jesus, but he already has ten. But God said, you know what? I say to you, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you, what you say. I don't care whether it's, it, what you feel is just or not. But whoever has ten, I will take what, the one who has one, take it from him and give it to the one who has ten because I say that's how the program works. And it doesn't matter what you say. So this morning, that's what we're here to talk about. Is this what God has to say or not? If it's true, then you either are going to refuse to accept it like our children do when we catch them with something, we know it's the truth, they can refuse to deny it, or they can say you're right and change their life because of it. Simple as that. 3,500 years ago, the Egyptians were busy building tourist attractions for the 20th century. <laughs> you know, if they knew it, they'd probably want royalties or something, or they want a percentage. They didn't realize it at the time, but that's what they were doing. As they built the pyramids, they were building these great tourist attractions for uh, our generation. To go over there, check it out, look at it. But the reality of it was, they weren't building tourist attractions as much as they were preparing their leadership for the life that was to come. And if you know anything of archaeology or anything of history, you realize that that was the purpose of the pyramids, was that they would take their leaders, they would entomb them, and then you know what they would do also? They would take all of their possessions, they would take sometimes their servants and their animals, they would kill them, they would put them in the tomb with their leader, and then they would entomb them because they believed inherently or innately that what they did now would affect the way that they enjoyed their afterlife. Interesting. Even in a polytheistic society, they had an innate understanding of what God is trying to teach us here, and that is that, hey, what we do today will affect the way that we live in the future. They believed that to the point where when their leaders died, they entombed them, put all their goodies in there, they killed their servants, killed their, their, their wives, they put everybody in there because they truly believed that how they live today would affect what they did in the future. The question I have is, as much as they believed that and lived according to it, here is God telling his people, this is what's happening in the future, and it doesn't change a thing about the way we live today. We're no different than our kids, who are confronted with the truth and just flat out deny the reality of it. So what we're here to talk about this morning is how our works, that the Bible said is the basis for our evaluation, how our works affect the way that we will be able to look forward to that evaluation. We started to go through it last week. I'm just going to buzz through this real quickly as a review. But, the re but the, there's um, five facts that we talked about as far as our evaluation. Some works are good, some works aren't. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul wrote that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The problem that we had with the, with the concept of works being good or bad was that many of us believed, if I would ask you, did you do good works or bad works, many of you last week said, well, bad works, we equated bad works to sin. The Bible doesn't equate bad works with sin because God's people will never be evaluated, quote, for their sins because Christ's death and his blood covers the sin, but we will be evaluated for what we're doing. So by sheer definition, we could do things that are socially acceptable, but yet worthless or bad works in the eyes of God. 
You follow me? God's saying that you can do things socially acceptable that will have no value whatsoever when it comes to rewards. Bad works are not sin. Bad works are those things that we do that will not earn us a reward on the day of our evaluation. Okay? Number two, good works are carefully chosen and bad works aren't. I'd like to just take a, a, a whole morning just to talk about what God has to say in the area of planning for our future. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 3.10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. As I left here last week and I talked to several people afterwards, I was challenged, and I'm going to challenge you in the same way, how does this truth of careful evaluation, how does it affect the way that you live your life? Did you leave here last week with a new understanding that, you know what, I better start being a little more aware of the truth of the matter. I have got to have a spiritual game plan in my life. I have got to have a list of people that I want to win for the Lord. I want God to use me in their life. I need to have a game plan that has to do with simple life change. And if you didn't leave here last week wrestling with that, either you've got a spiritual game plan and you're following it, or you're like the other people we talked about when they're confronted with the truth that bothers them for a little while, and until that feeling goes away, you wrestle with it, and then when it's gone, you just go on with what you were doing before. We need to be people who have carefully chosen how we're building upon that foundation. We need to get to the point where when we stand before the evaluation seat of Christ, that we're not looking back on our life and saying, gee, you know what? We did absolutely nothing that had eternal value. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13, we read good works are eternally valuable and bad works aren't. And the, and the truth of the matter is, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Good works are eternally valuable and bad works aren't. Not that bad works works, works may not be good socially, but bad works are not good when it comes to rewards. You don't have to be a murderer, or a thief, a plunderer, a, to pillage and do all these things during the week and say, oh, I did some bad works this week. No, you could have been socially acceptable and been great, but eternally valuable? No, not at all. In fact, I'll illustrate it by this. How many of you had a busy week this week? How many of you had a busy week? Busy week? Busy week? Busy week. Come on. How many of you? Busy week, right? Everyone had a busy week. Let me ask you a question. Pretty busy, huh? A lot of running around? Pretty busy schedule? Kind of tough? Jamming a lot of things into the old daytimer, you know, trying to do all the things that you're doing? Let me ask you this question. What did you get accomplished this past week? Nothing. Isn't that the truth? How many of you had a busy week and you got to the end of the week and you don't even know why it was a busy week? You never had a week like that? Not at all? Good. Some of you haven't. Some of you have. If you ever had weeks like that where you go, man, I was so busy this week, but I don't have a clue what I did. See, that's what God's worrying against. He's saying, look, every one of us are busy. We're only given so much time during the week. You're only given so much time during the day. You're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. But the question is, what are we doing with the allotted time that God's given us? I talk to more people who are busy, but they couldn't tell you what they were busy doing. If you had a busy week, 
how many of you had a week that if you would go, I mean, if, if God would call you home right now, and by the looks on some of your faces, you may have been called. Um, just, just testing here. Uh, yeah, you who are no longer with us. Now, as God evaluates your past week, and all the things that you did, and all the busyness that you had, as God evaluates it, let's just assume for a moment this pleasant thought. Today, in the presence of the Lord, oh, we've got to digress again because actually this isn't judgment day, so just for a moment, just pretend for a minute that if you are in the presence of the Lord today, judgment day, He's evaluating your works, what you did this week. Any of them going to endure? Any of them going to stand the, the test of the flame? Or were you real busy this week? And it was absolutely worthless as it comes to rewards. What did you do this week that had eternal value? Or did you just survive another week? What did you do? Did you do anything? Is there anything this week as you stood before the Lord and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant? What you did was good, had eternal value, it withstands the test. See, because good works are clearly enduring and bad works aren't. That's really what it boils down to. Good works are clearly enduring and bad works aren't. Challenge for you this week. Okay, you, you didn't pass last week. This week, you get a whole new week. You get a whole new day. You can sit down today and you can carefully choose the things that you will do, whether they're going to earn you a reward or whether they're going to be things that may be nice things to do, but in, in the light of eternity, they are absolutely worthless. You have a choice, again, as I do every day that God gives me another day, to deliberately choose what I'm going to do that day that will either be enduring or it won't. What a great opportunity that is every day that God gives us. Good works are clearly enduring and bad works aren't. I want you to notice something because here's time for our weekly disclaimer. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself shall be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Okay, ready? Weekly disclaimer. Is there anything that we can do? We can live totally worthless lives as far as rewards are concerned. But is that in and of itself enough to lose your salvation? Not at all. You notice that? Look at it very carefully. 1 Corinthians 3, 14, 15. It'll be burned up. That's your works. It's either going to survive or it's going to burn up. Two things. That's it. It's only two possibilities. If what you do today, it's either going to survive or it's going to burn up. That's it. Two things. I'm frying myself. <laughs> but I'm still safe. It's going to survive or it's going to burn up but he himself shall be saved. For grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And this is the witness that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John 10, read it sometime, and notice that those who have trusted in Christ Jesus said, in no way will anybody ever snatch them out of his hand. And it's important to realize that once you are lost, quote, to Satan, and you are on God's team, 
then what Satan wants to do is he can't have your soul, but he can have your life. And he's going to try to do everything that he can to make your life worthless for the kingdom of God. You will be busy doing things that will never receive reward even though you yourself will never lose your salvation. The Bible is very clear. In this study of rewards, I want to continue to disclaim it every week. There is nothing you'll ever do in the area of works, whether good or bad, that earn your salvation nor lose it. You are saved, you are saved, you are saved, but your works will be judged. Okay? All right. Last thing, good works are ultimately rewarding, bad works aren't. Self-explanatory. Those things that are good will, will uh, receive reward. Those things that are bad will suffer loss. And there's going to be an awareness because you can't suffer without being aware that you're suffering. There's going to be an awareness someday that you have done some things, you have blown it because you haven't utilized the time God's given you to do the things that will be eternally rewarding and valuable. You will suffer loss or receive a reward. And if you've ever seen anybody receive a reward, is there any, like, is there any joy that goes along with receiving a reward? I'm not going to ask this for hands, but, gonna, but I'll just ask it to illustrate it. Do you think, now I'm not even sure if this happened yet, but do you think people that are out there buying those lottery tickets? Not that there could be any in here. And I could care less, but the thing that I'm wrestling with is, do you think the winner is going to be bummed when they win? <laughs> oh, man, $60 million. What am I going to do with $60 million? Next thing you know, I'm going to have to hire a financial planner. and That'll cost maybe ten, twenty thousand, and down to $58,998,000. A couple relatives probably call us, I know that. You know, give them, you know, maybe one, two thousand bucks. I, you know, it's really, it's just real discouraging to end up with 60 million. I mean, if you got that, would you like a little bit, oh boy? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you see this big spin stuff, you just watch it sometimes. I mean, so you spend 200,000. Oh, $200,000. I didn't come here to win 200000 I was going for a million. 200000 I can't believe 200000 This is ridiculous. I don't want to keep it. I mean, you watch. When this person wins, they're going to be excited. And they may even become citizens. What? Just kidding. Yeah, cheap joke, cheap joke. All right. All right. Keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Okay, question for you. Personal question. Here we go. Let's shift gears real quick. Shift gears. Okay. Why do you, uh, why do you, uh, this is a great question. Why do you do what you do? My wife asks it every Sunday after we leave here. Why do you do what you do? I think I got an answer for you this morning. We're going to find out. And I'm excited. Personal question. Here we go. Why do you do what you do? How many of you listening this morning believe that you're doing, you're giving 100% to the Lord's work? 100%. I mean, you, there's nothing about your life that you would change. You would leave here today, you're given 100%, you know it in your heart, 
There's nothing you would do. You've got a spiritual game plan. Everything's rolling. You're following it along and you're giving 100%. How many of you believe you're giving 100% to the Lord? I'm surprised. How many of you believe that there's actually a little room, a little bit of room for improvement? A little bit of room. A little bit of room. Okay. Now wait. Oh, how many of you believe there's a lot of room? Okay, let me ask you this question. Logical. What's the reason for that? Why is there such a large gap between... I mean, it was like unanimous, right? I, no one raised their hand. They're, they're doing everything they should do. It's, all, it's unanimous. We believe that there's a lot of things we should be doing, more things that we could be doing, and it's almost unanimous. And it was kind of like the difference between Reagan and Mondale, the vote. That's what it was. 100% zero. I mean, it was a wipeout, clean sweep. Can I ask you a question? Why is that? Why do you do what you do? If you're sitting here telling me this morning that there is room in your life for improvement, there are more things you could be doing, you need to sit down and do a game plan. There's room to improve. Why is there such a difference between what we're doing and what we're saying we'd like to do? Beliefs, attitudes, values, personal choice. Really, what's it really boiled down to? Isn't that the truth? Personal choice. I hate to use illustrations. I can't think of any that don't offend somebody. Will that stop me? Hasn't before. I don't know. Take someone who wants to go on a diet. We all go through that, you know, because we're bombed with health ads and all this kind of stuff. So let's just take somebody for a moment who isn't too crazy about what they've become. Every time they look in the mirror, they want to lose weight, they want to lose weight, they, they're, they're going to start exercising, they're going to go on a diet, they're going to start watching what they eat, all these things, right? So there's room for improvement between where they are and where they'd like to be. You follow it? Spiritually, same thing. Room for improvement between where we're at and where we'd like to be. Okay, they talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. What gets them from here to there? Let's assume that you're going to face a difficult action. Action. Let me ask you this. If you continue to hear somebody who continues to say they want to look better, they want to look better, they want to lose weight, they want to exercise, they want to do these things, and they never do, what do you have to start to question? What's their real desire? Is their real desire, I would like for people to look at me as if I'm over here, because I don't want to pay the price to go from here to there. Isn't that really what it boils down to? Spiritual life. You're over here. You want to be over here. You keep telling everybody you want to be over here. Boy, I want to be over here. You know what? You don't want to pay the price to go from here to there, but you want everybody to think you're over here. Right? Why? Because it's easy for people to think you're over here than to have you go from here to there. It's easier for people to think you are thin and looking good than it is for you to go through all the struggle and all the sacrifice and pay the price to get over here. Isn't that true? That's where we're at. That's what's disgusting about Christians. Me included. Because I want to be over here, I'm over here, and I don't want to do anything to get to there, but I just want God to say, you're over here, buddy. 
Oh, you're over here. Oh, great, good, because I hate to put in any time, effort, energy, sweat, pray about it, do anything about it to get over here. I just want to get there. Isn't that where we're at? Why are you doing what you're doing? You're sitting here telling me, you know what, I'm over here and I really want to be over here. There's a lot of room for improving my Christian life, but you know what, I don't really care to get over here. You're not going to tell me that. You're not going to tell the rest of us that. But your action, inaction, is exactly what you think in your heart. Man, if that don't wrap you between the eyes, it certainly hits home with me. Isn't that the truth? I don't want to change my life. I don't want to change my works. I don't want to change my performance. I'd rather you just think that I'm over here because I'm not going to pay a price. It's your choice. How does that tie into what we're talking about as far as evaluation? Look through it. We have an innate desire. What's our innate desire? Our innate desire is we want people to think we're over here, right? Outside influence. Somebody agitates you like me. In the Word of God. And the Word of God says, you want to be over there? Then you've got to pay the price to get from here to there. Outside influence. You know what you wrestle with this morning as you leave here? Potential for gain or loss. How much is it worth for me to be over there opposed to where I'm at today right here? How bad do I want to get over there? How bad do I want to lose weight? How bad do I want people to think uh, such and such about me? How bad? How bad do I want that? What price will I pay? Potential for gain or loss. Then you know what you do? You decide. I'm going to start the exercise. I'm going to do it. What did you do? You propose in your heart, in your mind, a game plan. Follow it spiritually, diet-wise. I got a game plan. I'm going to do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm going to do this. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I'm going to eat this type of food. And I'm going to cut back on these kind of calories. And I'm going to have this much intake. And I'm going to have this much I'm burning off. And over this period of time, I'm going to see some progression and some improvement. And by the end of two weeks, we're going to have this goal accomplished. And the end of a month, we'll have this. And the end of six months, we're going to have that. And guess what? You're progressing because you're willing to pay the price, volitional decision to act, and you take action. God says to you and I, faith without works is still dead. It's still dead. It's always going to be dead. It's never going to be alive. Don't tell me you have faith and not act. Is what God said very clearly. Don't tell me you love me and yet you don't keep my commandments. You can say all you want, but your actions indicate loudly what really you want. Choice. Do you want to go from here to there? Are you willing to take the necessary steps to do it? Are you willing to pay the price to do it? That's what discipleship is all about. That's what a diet, you sit down and you plan. Why don't we have spiritual plans the same way? By such and such a day, we're going to accomplish this, and by this time, we're going to see this happen. And uh, in a book that I read... Uh, Dawson Trotman. Have you ever Dawson Trotman wrote a little booklet, Born to Reproduce? I ran into it because God reminded me of this. And he said about discipleship. He said, if each man just takes one man and disciples him for six months, and then the two of them go out and disciple two more men, and then the four of them go out and disciple four more men, he said, and at the end of a year and a half, there'll be six, at the end of three years, there'll be 64. 16 having doubled. He said, at the end of five years, there'll be 1,048. And at the end of 15 years, there'll be 2,176,000 disciples because you sat down with the spiritual game plan and you said, Lord, just give me one man to disciple and make it the right guy so that when I disciple him and I get a commitment from him that at the end of the time I disciple him, he'll go and disciple someone else. 
and we continue to make that agreement that we're going to go out and we're going to continue to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce at the end of 15 years, game plan, into 15 years, 2,176,000. He said even if one of them doesn't hold true to his commitment, you'll still have a million and 30,000 disciples. Question I ask for you, what's your game plan? What have you proposed? What have you sat down and, and, and did that you can look at that will be eternally rewarded and eternally valuable, that will receive a reward? How many have you reproduced? How many have you sat down and discipled that are discipling somebody else that have reproduced, reproduced? That will be eternally valuable. That will be rewarded. But no, we're too busy. We're too busy doing things we don't even know what we did. We can't even remember at the end of the week. I'm here to agitate you this morning. Three and eight desires in people. Desire for possession, desire for power, desire for pleasure. If you didn't hear my opening line, this is where I left you hanging last week, and a couple came back because they want to know how to have more of these three things. So that's what we're talking about. Possession, power, and pleasure. These are innate desires. I want you to see if they're not true. You don't have to take it from me. Take it from what God has to say. You ready? You tell me where you see these three innate desires show up in the garden. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Eve kind of embellishes a little bit on the story. And Satan says, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The question that we're addressing is, Why do you and I do what we do? Three innate desires in every one of us. Power, pleasure, possession. Where do you see, as we look through this story, these desires evident? Do you see them at all? Look in, there, look in the response of Satan. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, power. You will be like God. Satan hits on an innate desire. You'll be like God. Hey, you know what? Be like God. If you're like God, you can get above this garden thing, man. Maybe there's other things where you can do. Boy, this is great. You can be just like God. Alright, you ready for that? Where do you see pleasure? Okay, food was pleasing to the eye. He said, well, I mean, they had to eat to survive. How many of you this week, how much of your eating was pleasure or survival? Remember now, other people have seen you eat. Okay? Pleasure. Pleasure. Although, yeah, I mean, we've, we've all eaten with people that, yeah. Pleasure, though, right? Food was good and what? Pleasing to the eye. Pleasure. If you don't think that's true, how do you think they sell cars? Engineering specifications? Huh? When's the last time you checked that engine specs when you bought a car? How do they suck up? Nice lines. I still don't know what that means. I have no idea. But it's a term that people use when they're walking around and looking at a car. Ooh, it got nice lines. Oh, nice lines. I don't know, but it looks good. Maybe that's what they're talking about. 
I mean, basically, if you don't think that's true, I mean, that's the whole purpose of advertising. What do the advertisers want you to do? They want to package something so that's so pleasurable to look at that what? I gotta have it. Man, that looks good. I got to have it. They don't sell things based on specs. Spec sheet. Check the spec sheet out. Watch the commercials today. You check any TV out. Watch the commercials. See how many of them sit down there and bore you with overheads and stuff. Um, I know, see, really, if, if, if this was done right, you'd have like a big picture of an apple and it would be real nice, you know, and it would be real pleasurable and then you can identify with it. But the bottom line is that it was pleasing to the eye. You see, how many things do you do because they're pleasing to the eye? They look good. Follow me? Why do you do what you do? Number one is because you want power. You want to be like God. I want to be like God. No one's going to tell me what to do. God's not going to tell me what to do. I don't care what he tells me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Power. Pleasure. Man, that looks good. I want some of that. I think I'll have that. I don't care if God says it's good or bad. It doesn't matter to me. I want it and I want it now. Possession. Possession. Took it. Possessed it. Desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate. To be wise, to be like God is also power, but also there's possession involved in just having it and, and holding it. So all of those things are, are noticed as you, as you take a look at it. But you know what's so funny? You think that's just con that was just something that Eve wrestled with? Notice this about the humanity of Christ. What does Satan play on again? In, in Luke 4, 3.13, the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him an instant, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Jesus answered and said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Paul says in Romans that Jesus Christ was the second Adam. That here was the first Adam that had the same innate desires, the same innate uh, desires for power, pleasure, and possession. Now here Satan comes along later to Jesus Christ and he offers them the same things. Notice him. Where do you see possession, power, pleasure? Do you notice all of it there? Give me some examples. Throw them out. Bread, bread, what? Pleasure. He'd been out in the wilderness for 40 days. He said, hey, I want to give you bread. It's going to meet your immediate need. It's pleasure. Here, take some bread. What else did he say? Power, where? Kingdoms of the world. Or possession. If nothing else, possession. He showed him. He said, in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I have the authority and splendor. I'll give it all to you. Possession, you can have it all. And in power, he said, hey, why don't you jump off from here? If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Show your power. Show that you're God. You know the difference between the first time and the second time? What was the difference between the two temptations? What was the difference between what happened in the garden and what happened here? Okay. Jesus answered the temptations with the Word of God. He didn't give in, and in Him there was no sin. But the first temptation led to sin. Do you follow what's happening? We are influenced outside, externally, by Satan, who uses our innate desires against the kingdom of God, or we are motivated by God to use those same desires to glorify God. You follow me? 
Two outside influences. Okay, there's some quizzical looks. Let me throw this out to you. Was there motivation in the garden before we see Satan on the scene? Was there motivation in the garden? Was there motivation in the garden? What was it? You know what God said? What did God say? He said, He said, you don't do it. Why? Because you will die. Outside influence? Motivation? What motivation was it? Fear. See, God said, hey, you know what? If you do this, outside influence, potential for gain or loss, loss, you will die. Wrestle with the decision, what did they do? They died. Because they thought that it was better to have it now and to please themselves than to be obedient to God. Why do we do what we do? That's what it boils down to in a nutshell. Why are we doing what we do? You know what? And, it, and all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that... The, here, here's a good example about the kings. The kings were warned of the same innate desires. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What were the innate desires? Power, horses, multiply horses. The more horses you had, the more powerful that you were. It was a display of power. Okay? How about wives? Pleasure? That's arguable. <laughs> but, no, no, not one. I didn't say one. Uh, many, many wives. That's, that's <laughs> Pleasure, though. I mean, that's what, I mean, basically, that's the problem, right? Pleasure. Okay? And how about do not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold? Possession. The innate desires, they're all there. They're still here. We're still wrestling with them. Power, pleasure, possession. What is it that you're going to wrestle with? See, because really there's two outside sources, right, of influence. Satan, who influences through temptation, and God, who influences through motivation. Temptation, motivation. So, well, God motivates? I don't believe God motivates. Really? Why don't you believe that? This book here is full of motivation. We'll talk next week about how God motivates, but there's no question in my mind that God motivates us through His Word. We're going to take a look at it. We saw the motivation that existed in the garden. If you do it, you'll die. The motivation was fear. Potential for loss was great. And yet at the same time, the temptation to be like God was great. The temptation for pleasure was great. And so there's these two outside influences who are bombarding us every day of our life with making a choice. Every day, you and I wrestle with making a choice. You're being bombed by outside influences. God is motivating you to do what's right and that will glorify Him. Satan who is tempting you to do evil. And you notice the difference? James says that don't anyone ever say that God tempts one to do evil. God does not tempt to do evil, but God does motivate to do right. That's what we're wrestling with throughout this series on rewards. God will never tempt you to do what's wrong. I'm going, to, I'm going to wrap it up on this because I want you to see this because this answers a question. Many of you have had some questions. This answers a question that I've been wrestling with and that we need to take a look at and we'll put it all together here. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead oh no because he did it because he loved God because he did it 
because he wanted to do what was right. How many of you have wrestled with that in this series? You mean we can look forward to reward? Isn't that a bad motivation? I mean, isn't that kind of selfish in and of itself to look forward to your reward one day before the Lord that He can say, well done, my good and faithful servant? I mean, shouldn't we serve God just out of love? Are you going to tell me that these innate desires, that God understands my innate desires, He knows what motivates us? See, there is a great difference in your workplace between innate desires and output. Isn't that true? I mean, the, the world is spending millions and millions of dollars to, to close the gap between innate desires. What are innate desires? People want food, shelter, clothing. They want to drive a nice car. They want nice clothes. So the people that work with you, they want all of these innate desires fulfilled. But you want output as an employer. Okay, we'll meet these needs, but I need this from you. And so there's this gap that's here because innate desires in and of themselves aren't enough. How many get there on Monday morning and say, let's go get it, let's go for it, we're here another week, we're, at, we're here to perform, we're here to do our job, we're here to give you output. It's like, oh, Monday again. Who, has anyone made any coffee yet? It's like, so the world's trying to narrow that gap, right? They call it motivation. Guess what? It's no different. God knows your innate desires. He desires certain output and he wants to narrow that gap because innate desires in and of themselves are never enough to get you to do what is right, to take action. So that's what God's doing. But look what Moses said. What did he look forward to? He looked forward to his reward. Man, this is a guy that we, we've seen movies about Moses. I mean, there's been a lot of good movies about Moses. We give him a lot of credit. Oh man, this guy served the Lord, loved the Lord. I don't question that he did. But you know what? The Bible's pretty honest about it, isn't it? He looked forward to the rewards that were to come rather than to look at the temporary pleasures of today. Is that wrong? Is that wrong when you're wrestling with the decision today of the temptation that Satan brings in your life, you can have it now or you can look forward to when God gives it to you because it's going to be a lot better. Is that so wrong? See, that's what we're wrestling with, isn't it? Motivation. Is it okay to look forward to the reward? Man, you know what? God never criticizes Moses to look forward to his reward. Because by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. See, you know what this whole series boils down to is faith. You and I cannot see our reward. Is that true? You and I cannot see our reward. What we do see, though, is the temporary pleasures that are offered to us today. Don't wait. Have it now. God's trying to motivate us to be able to see with eyes that can see things that are invisible to men. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's to be able to see through God's eyes that which is true, that which is coming. This earth and all that you see is temporary and is passing away. Do you realize that? Everything you and I see right now will not exist. But what we can't see is eternal. God wants you and I to have eyes that can see what God says is true. This whole series on rewards, the, the crux of the matter is, we've got to stop looking at what we see as being important, but what we can't see and heading toward that as being where we want to be. Do you follow what I'm saying? You've got to be able to look and say, hey, you know what, back to the illustration. I've got to be able to see what I can't see now, what it's going to be like to lose 30 or 40 pounds I've got to be able to look at that, to see that, to envision it, to know it's true. If I do all these things, I'm going to move in that direction and I can't concentrate on the sweat and on the sacrifice and on the, the, the skimpy calories and I can't look at those things today because if I do, I'll never get there. 
That's our spiritual life in a nutshell. Stop looking at things that are offered to you today as being things that are going to last and they're going to be valuable. The things that you and I cannot see are the things that are going to earn you a reward before the evaluation seat of Christ. Next week we'll look at how does God motivate us. God is the greatest motivator there ever was. You know why? Because God knows more about you and I than any motivator in any book you'll ever pick up in a bookstore because He made us. He knows exactly what makes us tick. And you know what? He uses that to influence us for His benefit and His glory. We're going to look at that next week. How does God motivate? Let's pray. Our Father, again, we're just bombed with so many different directions that we could head, but the one that keeps coming back to me is just what it means to have a plan and a purpose in life. Lord, we just pray that you can help each one of us just to leave here this morning totally convicted about the busyness of our schedules, and yet we can't remember a thing that we do. Lord, help us to set priorities that will have eternal value and that will earn a reward and not to be focused and concentrating on all the temporary pleasures that Satan has to offer. God, help us to be like Moses, where we can look forward to the reward that God says will be, oh, just 20 times better. Peter asked the question, Lord, he said, well, we've left everything. What do we have to look forward to? And Jesus answered and said, oh, there's nothing that you've ever left that won't be replaced a hundredfold. God, we can look forward to that with much anticipation if we begin to realize that what we don't see is still true and it's a reality. Give us eyes like Moses to have the conviction of things that we can't see, just the assurance that they exist, to give us the faith that we need to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to be sensitive to your motivation 